good morning. I wish we had like a checklist of things I have to make sure that it's on and turned on ready to roll before we come up here. But at least the lights have changed to where I'm not blinded so I can see people in the front row. But unbeknownst to Joel, uh, this is actually our new worship setup. So it's going to drive him insane, but hey, welcome to Arizona. Uh, now we are glad that you are here at Gateway this morning. We are excited. Uh, and, and I said this first service and I mean it. Is this the first time, and, and maybe somebody can tell me, I don't know how long, that we have had a multiple-day VBS. I'm looking over here because I know that you all know. Uh, can we just give it up for that? And I mean that wholeheartedly. Um, because I believe that VBS, as much as I got exhausted with them as a kid, because my dad's a minister, not only did I have to go to mine, but I had to go to every single one of them in the area to the point where I was like, hey, I don't know if you know this, Mom and Dad, but the VBS is kind of like a curriculum for every church. I've heard the same thing a hundred times. And my mom says, I don't care, we're going. Uh, but no, we, we are, it, and being a part in the middle of a pandemic still, and we are able to do this freely, um, and that is not to undermine the, obviously, COVID or anything else, but the fact that we get to do this is a huge deal. And I'm just grateful that we are a part of a church that still puts it on and still wants to be a part of the community. But can I pray? And we'll get into it this morning. Father, calm our anxious mind. In the moments where we are stressed out or exhausted, worn out, burned out, God, maybe all of the above, help us to remember that the story has been written and we know who wins. God, even just thinking about what we have to go through right now between COVID or maybe it's the political unrest, maybe it's the racial unrest, maybe it's all the, the different things that politics are telling us one way and then pulling us the other. Maybe it's getting on social media and just seeing all the negative things that are going on. God, regardless what it is, you have won the battle. And our amount of worry will not change any of it. So God, help us to rest in those moments when we know you're good. Help us not lean on our own understanding, but on you alone. In your name I pray, amen. Last week, I had the opportunity to preach down at our Beckley campus. Um, and we talked about the persistent mother. But before we get to that, we want to put a few things out in front of you. Here at Gateway, we try to be a praying church. Now, my prayer is that every church in the area does that. Is that that should be a goal for every believer uh, in, in church out there. Is that we want to be a praying church, meaning that we filter everything we do through prayer. Whether that be through the sermons. Maybe it's the students. Maybe it's the, uh, the, the, the children's. Maybe it's a different ministry. And that prayer that we filter everything through is meant to lead us towards an action where we want to be an evangelistic type church as well. That's the call that Jesus tells the disciples at the end of Matthew is that we need to go out and actually do something with what it is. We can, we can pray. Don't get me wrong. We need to. We should pray. But if it doesn't lead us to action, then we're doing half the work. And that's the good stuff. That's where we get to see God really come to fruition. And even uh, with what we've talked about, over the past few weeks, we went through a Genesis series about life and how does that look. Later on, uh, this coming year, we're doing a Revelation series, meaning near the end of life, how do we navigate that? But the good news is, is we're in the middle of all of it. We're not at the beginning of life. We're not at the end of life, at least for the most of us. We're, we're trying to navigate our life now. And what does that look like? And that's where we get our Pray for One series. 
where we have been living for this whole year is who's your one? Who's the person that you have, that, that God has placed in your life to pray for? What do they need in their life? How can you help them? And then maybe you've already seen that kind of come to fruition. Maybe the one that you have prayed for has already changed whatever it is that you've been praying for. Well, guess what? Add another one. We try to make math complicated, but one plus one does equal two, and that's called multiplication after that. Right, Mike? But we become a praying church to become evangelistic, which is what we do in the middle with pray for one. Now, if you don't know, I'm wearing our VBS shirt. I will pay $10. Scratch that. Joel will pay everyone $10 if you have a shirt on. And Megan, you're Joel's wife. I don't see a bank account coming up for you. But we have our Pray for One shirt as well, which is just, again, a reminder for you. And if you're interested in that, you can go to our church website and you can purchase them there. But regardless what you think, when it comes to your spiritual giftedness, meaning who you are, what you do, and I talked about this down in Beckley last week, is there are a lot of people who are extroverts. I am one. I'd like to talk almost a little too much. My wife is the complete opposite of me. But our effectiveness in achieving the pray for one is the exact same. It may seem different. It may look different. It may be different. And, and the ones that she can reach, I can't reach as easily because I'm a little much. And the opposite can be said. So regardless how you feel about it, you are able to be effective regardless. The more that we go through our life, we try to pray for one because if we're called to go out and teach people, preach to people, tell them about the love of God, then how does that look in my life? Well, good news is what looks right for me does not look right for you. And we have a lot of misconceptions about how we can evangelize and how we talk to people about Jesus. So I want to hit just on a couple of these misconceptions really quick. Meaning whenever you're praying for your one, we have expectations. And whenever those expectations aren't met, at that point we get frustrated and discouraged thinking that we're being ineffective or we have failed in some way. Am I right? So one misconception is that we expect instant change. It's like if you pray for your one, one time, at that point, they should change their life and become missionaries. It's not realistic, right? I'm not saying it can't happen, but the likelihood's a little less. Being in student ministry for 10 plus years now, I've understood when you invite them, they don't hear you the first six times, maybe 20 times. Sometimes we just have to understand the realistic goal of it and just be like, I just got to be consistent. Another misconception is we expect to change the masses. When I first gave my life to ministry, not Jesus, to ministry, I was going into 10th grade. And I said, God, I'm going to set Princeton Senior High School on fire. And what I don't understand, what I didn't understand is I did, but I wanted to do it in a literal sense because nobody was listening to me. Right? I wasn't really going to set my school on fire. I'm just joking. But we expect to change the masses. We have this great news about Jesus. We have this great news about the Bible and, and, and God and the redemption story through Christ. And we expect everybody to hear it and accept it. And yet when you look at Scripture... That's never been the case, and yet that can discourage us. Another one is that we expect dramatic change. Remember the whole missionary talk? Whenever we talk to somebody and they start to maybe come around to it, now we're expecting them to completely give up everything in their life and to follow the gospel. 
Luke and I are in a class right now for our apologetics degree where we're learning about world religions. And, I'm ta- and, and I've, I've really taken a deep dive into Islam. And what I'm learning is that for a Muslim to change to Christianity, they're not just giving up faith. They're giving up a whole lot more. In their belief system, if one of your, 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 your kin, so let's say your great-great-great-grandfather was a Muslim missionary who did amazing works in the Muslim faith, if you, being the great-great-grandson, changes your life to follow Jesus, you're putting shame on him even though he's dead. Not only that, there are different radical Muslims who, would, who, who basically say, if you change Christianity, I can kill you and it be okay. Not only that, your family, if they're devout, will disown you. So for a Muslim to change to Christianity or to convert to Christianity... They're not giving up just a belief system. They're potentially giving up their life. A dramatic change takes time. And if we get discouraged because one prayer in their life didn't work, well, then it's never going to be effective. Another one, really quick, is we expect it to be easy. We expect it to be obvious. We can't understand why somebody wouldn't just change their life to Jesus. You see, when you're praying for one, it takes time. Going back to what we talked about last week, the persistent widow was just that. If you remember, the persistent widow, I mean, not widow, I'm sorry, the persistent mother, she gave her life to Jesus, but it wasn't until the last moment because she was a Canaanite. She was a Gentile, meaning she wasn't chosen. From the beginning of the Bible, the Jews were the first ones to take the charge. There were their promise. That was a promise to God. And I don't know how much Brian got to talk to you about that, but whenever he's talking about uh, even the dogs, get scraps back in Mark chapter 7. He's saying, I don't think you're a dog that's immoral. I'm just saying the child gets the food first and then we feed the rest. So when the persistent mother is hearing this, she doesn't get mad. She doesn't say, hey, you offended me. She doesn't walk away. She says, yes, but the smallest blessings you give can come to me too. And Jesus says, because of your great faith, your daughter is healed. Which shows me something. To understand what Jesus is teaching in Scripture, you don't have to be the most holy. You just need to be the most humble. You don't have to come and have like this massive knowledge brain and understand absolutely everything and be the smartest. The smartest people can still miss the point too. But when you understand exactly what our place is and understand we would be the Canaanite woman in the story, we are just as broken up and busted as anybody. And we need the exact same grace as everybody, as we're going to talk about today. And sometimes it takes time to understand that. And I think if we were to ask everybody what your story was to come to Jesus, it took time for you too, even if you didn't know it. So today we're talking about deliberate love. Can you say deliberate? What does deliberate mean? Well, the definition we're going to be using is purposeful, careful, and intentional. A deliberate kind of love. We're trying to be deliberately loving meaning intentional on how we love, consistent in how we love. You see, we need to be thinking about how we react and how we respond to people when they are their one, whenever they're not getting it. Or maybe they're getting it, but they're not putting it to action. How do we love in the worst of those moments? How do we love in the best of those moments? Does our love change whenever that happens? Deliberate would say no. Deliberate would say we have to be consistent in that and intentional in that even when it's difficult. How are you deliberately loving? 
In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, we read this. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Every single person. That means me, that means you. Is that it doesn't mean we get our stuff together, then come to Jesus. It's that Christ died because you were in your sins. That's the whole need for a savior. If you weren't a sinner, then you don't need to be saved. And if you don't need to be saved, then Christ died for nothing. They don't coexist that way. Christ died because we were the ones in our sins who need that saving grace. But today we're talking about probably one of the most popular verses or sections of scriptures that's ever been told. If you were to Google this, I guarantee you, you will have thousands upon thousands. I would even care to say millions of hits on it between articles, maybe books, maybe kids' books. I don't really know, but the prodigal son. And every time you read this, I can assure you that you're going to find a different meaning through it. Back in February, actually, we did a sermon series on the prodigal son where we talked about the main point. The main point of that was that God loves the one. That could be you and that could be actually your one. God loves everyone individually where they are. We talked about the who, and today we're going to talk about the how. We know who to love, who we should love, who God loves, but the question is, is how do we and how does God love us? What does that look like? So we're going to read through here in Luke chapter 15, starting with verse 11, through the, uh, most of the story of the prodigal son. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of my property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And when he was longing to be fed with the paws that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose, and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, and he felt compassion. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring Quick, uh, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. We're gonna go through a couple things but the first thing we need to understand is he let him go. Now, I've mentioned multiple times that my three-year-old is Godzilla and Scrappy-Doo. But there are moments in a parent's life, and if you are a parent, you know exactly where I'm going with this, I hope, is that when you hope that they understand something without you having to explain it very much. For instance, I'm cooking dinner, and my daughter finally realizes that she can open the door and go outside. Well, we have a rule. You can't unless an adult is out there with you. Now, two things happen. Number one, when she walks out inevitably, walks outside without you, She's either going to look 
at you from the other side, break down in complete fear and realize I can't get back in because pushing is a whole lot easier than pulling, right? Or number two, they're going to go play in the grass and do their own thing. So I'm cooking dinner one night. She's looking at me. She basically gives me a little giggle and a twinkle in her eye that says, I'm out, bye. She opens the door and she walks out. As a parent, I'm hoping for number one. I'm wanting her to look through that glass, look at me in complete fear, and me be like, I told you so. Instead, I see her run as fast as she can straight down the stairs and starts playing on her swings and holding it, trying to do American Ninja Warrior all by herself. But in a parent's life, we're always wanting that moment to where they, like, they learn a lesson and you can say, I told you so. Because sometimes you just have to let them learn things on their own because they're not going to listen. That's one thing that I loved about my parents was that they allowed me to make mistakes even if they knew I was going to make them. Because their love for me wasn't going to change based off my dumb decisions. And maybe that was hanging out with friends. Maybe that was saying, hey, I need money for this because it's going to make me happy. And they're like, it's not, but, you know, here's $20, have fun. Regardless what it is, is that we have moments where we have to say maybe to ourselves, to our kids, or maybe even something, someone saying it to us, is he let him go. Now, the dad in the story knew what was going to happen. At least you have to assume so. He knew that he was going to waste everything and knew that it wasn't going to turn out well for the son. But yet he continued to let him go. If you read at the very beginning of Luke chapter 15, you see that Jesus is actually eating with tax collectors and the sinners. And the Pharisees aren't very happy about it. And the Pharisees are like, can you believe he's hanging out with them people? And when we're reading this story as people in the church, we, we, we were like, oh man, like Jesus is hanging out with the tax collectors and the sinners, that's great. But if we're being really objective to ourselves, I think we probably relate more with the Pharisees more than we do Jesus in the story. Am I right? We see people who maybe have a different worldview than us. Maybe they're struggling with addiction. Maybe they're living a lifestyle that's opposite of what the Bible teaches. And we're sitting back saying, really? And we almost try to walk the other way so that we don't have to interact with that. Because it's harder to interact with that, am I right, than just simply avoid it? So we relate more with the Pharisees than we do Jesus. So my question to you, just on this little side note, is how can we change that mentality? How do we love people in their worst, even when it doesn't work out for us necessarily in that moment? How do we love people deliberately in these instances to where we don't relate more with the Pharisees? Whenever we actually seek out the sinners and the tax collectors like Jesus, because if we believe Jesus is the greatest person to ever live, well, shouldn't we follow his example? Then why is it so easy for us to do the opposite? Because the world tells us it's easier to do the opposite and to focus on yourself. And as a Bible-believing church, we can't let that be the case. Jesus sought them out. So then Jesus gets down into the story because the disciples were all there. They were listening. You got sinners and you got tax collectors there. You got the Pharisees all listening. So now you get into the story. Before this, the prodigal son story, you have two other lost stories. He tells a story of a sheep who wandered off and was lost. Remember, he lost the one, so he went to find the one, left the 99. And then he tells a story about a woman who lost a coin in her house. And so she turns the house upside down just to find this one coin. But in those two stories, 
the person who owns the item goes to find it. But in the prodigal son, the lost thing isn't being sought out. What's the difference here? Why is Jesus changing the story and the tone here? Well, let's dig into the story. The younger guy, and we can't even get to like the older person in the story. Like we got to focus here on the younger. The younger guy is showing the biggest amount of disrespect that anybody could in that time. For a younger son to come up and say, I want my part of the inheritance, that was arrogant and it was out of line. Back in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 21, it says, an inheritance gained hastily in the beginning will not be blessed in the end. So he's saying in, in Proverbs that if you ask for an inheritance too soon, it's not going to be blessed. But even more than that, back then, the younger son never got an inheritance. And if he did, it was because of another thing. The older son in the story was supposed to get the blessing. So the fact he got anything was pretty unique. But he's basically telling his dad when he says, I want my part of the inheritance, I wish you were dead. I want it out, and I don't want to be bound to my parents' authority. I'm gone. He opened up the door and ran to his place swing. Now imagine being the dad in the story. You've raised this kid up, and you're doing everything that you can, I'm sure. And your son comes up and takes the Ten Commandments, kicks him out the door and says, honor your father and mother, I'm not going to do that anymore. Now what about the crowd? You see, in this crowd story, they're, they're, they're primarily Jewish. So they're listening to this Jewish boy disrespect his Jewish dad, and they're saying, I can't believe that he would do that. And understand, when Jesus is talking in parables, you can th- like, we can assume that maybe the, some of the stories really happened, but most of the time, he's just trying to, to, to explain a point. He's trying to get a point across. So he's, he's directing it directly towards people in the crowd. And half the time, if you read it, the very people who are mad about the story are the exact people that Jesus is talking directly to. And that's intentional. But what about you? How does this make you feel hearing it? Maybe for you and for your one, You've welcomed your one into your home and they've taken advantage of your home. Maybe you've prayed for your one consistently and they're ignoring you completely. Maybe you've loved them through the worst in their life and they're barely even being patient with you in yours. Maybe you forgave them, but they just continue to make the same mistakes and no changes of action. Maybe you let them into your life and they're taking advantage of it. The dad could have ignored the son. The dad could have kicked the son out and said, "Uh, I'm not giving you anything, but you can go. He probably could have put his son in prison, but instead he let him go. He let him go. Think about it. If he had refused his son, let's say the son comes and he says, I'm not giving you anything, get out of here. The son was probably going to leave anyways, and then the son then begins to do the complete opposite and grows resentment in his heart towards his parents anyways. The father let him go. So my question to you is, is do you believe that you can walk away from your faith? Absolutely. You see, God gives you free will, meaning that you can walk away from this at any point. I feel, I, I'm of the belief system that, that, that if, if anything is forced, if, if you force any kind of love onto anybody, can we truly call it love? If you walk into your house and you find a new dog and you take that dog and you say, you're gonna love me forever, Well, the dog's probably not going to like that because you're probably doing it a little forcefully. Let's take a spouse or a friend. Let's say your your spouse is forced to love you and and they've been reluctant from the beginning. Now you're changing the definition of what love is 
And then it doesn't become love if you have to change the definition. If you have to change what the meaning of a word actually is, well, then you can't call it that specific word anymore, and you got to make up a new word. Whenever God made us, he gave us the capacity to love, but he also gave us the capacity to not love. And that's really hard for us to understand sometimes. So whenever he let him go, it's because he could, and he knew the son was going to. Number two, he never stopped watching for him to come back. In Luke chapter 15, verse 20, what we just read, he says this again. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, ran and embraced him and kissed him. How many of you guys ever watched the movie Homeward Bound? It's the hardest I've ever cried in my life. And it was yesterday. No, I'm just kidding. But if I'm being honest, like as a young kid, and that was like an early 90s movie, I remember watching that, and, and I named my dog Shadow after him in the movie, just so we know. But you remember that moment in Homeward Bound, if you know. I'm guaranteed that if there are any of my students in here, they don't know what Homeward Bound is, and I'm disappointed in every single one of you. But in Homeward Bound, at the very end of the movie, you've, wa- you've watched the journey of Sassy and Chance and Shadow trying to get back home after they've get, gotten lost. And they're, at the, and they're in their backyard, and they're just kind of waiting around, and then all of a sudden, you hear the worst voiceovers of any movie ever made. And you see Chance come running across. And you get excited. I'm going to start crying. Just ignore it. And then next you see Sassy, the cat. She comes running. But then you think the movie's over because they're waiting for Shadow and Shadow doesn't come. So they wait and they start walking back in. And the, and the, and the young boy, if you remember, he says, he's, he's old, he's old, he's dead. And you're like, oh my gosh, I'm eight years old. And then next thing you know, Shadow comes across the thing, and it's this huge gathering of, he came home. And I always think, like, this is how it probably was for that father in that story, if we're trying to put a face to it, is he's waiting day after day, and he's expecting this huge homecoming, and he doesn't come. A couple days later, he doesn't come. He just keeps waiting, and he keeps waiting. And for a Jewish man to run, that's unique in itself, because Jewish men don't run because it was seen as a sign of weakness. So the Jewish dad gets up, he runs, and he embraces his son. But one thing that I do love about it real quick is that for the son, he's probably sitting in that pig pen, and he's wanting to eat. And so if you remember the text, he starts like reciting this, this, this phrase in his head, like, here's what I'm going to say, here's what I'm going to tell my dad, and because of it, I, maybe I can just be a hard servant. So he writes down on his, uh, I, I forgot what they write on, on papyri, and he starts writing it down with a quail pen or something. And he's like, here's what I'm going to say. And so he gets to the house. Dad comes running out there. And I can see the son pulling out the paper, getting ready to recite what he was trying to say in the pig pen. And the dad says, stop. It doesn't matter. You're home. That's what I care about. You're home. He, his dad didn't make him feel horrible. He didn't judge him. He didn't condemn him. He just simply said, you're home. And we've all been in that hard place before. Maybe you're the parent who has to watch somebody walk away. Maybe you're the friend who has to let a friend kind of go down their own path because they're going down a path that you just can't follow. Here's the thing, is that love knows that sometimes you don't know what love is until you've lost it or what you think you've lost it. G.K. Chesterton, he says, it was his home now. And he's talking about the prodigal son. But it could not be his home until he had gone from it and returned to it. And now he was a prodigal son. 
The son didn't know what true love was until he thought he lost it. And then he realized that love was never gone to begin with. And instead it magnified it in that moment. Another important note about the Jewish thing is that pigs were ceremonially unclean. Meaning that not only could you not eat them, but if you were anywhere near them, now you're considered unclean and you'd have to go through all of these different things to become clean again. But let's not forget this. The Jewish son not only was feeding the pigs, but he wanted to eat like the pigs. He didn't get to eat the pigs, which probably would have been a step up for him. He wanted to eat what they ate. So you want to talk about the lowest of the low for, the, for, for a certain person? He was the question. Like, he was the complete question of the answer. Like, that was him. He was the lowest of low. He was in the bottom of the bottom. And when you're at the bottom, anything looks good. Anything looks good. But there's a thing that we have, like, like that we can kind of see is there are actually levels of repentance, meaning to completely change. Number one is regret. Whenever we've messed up and we've made the mistake, we regret it. And listen, regret is a good thing because regret in something leads you to do something else about it. Whenever you regret something, that means you care about it. Whenever you regret something, you realize I've done something wrong. Our problem is that we tend to take that regret and we either tend to live in it or we tend to stay in it. Whenever we live in it, meaning we're like, well, I'm just a I'm just broken anyway, let's just keep going. Or we just beat ourselves down so more that we can't build ourselves back up because we're so lost in who we used to be. Regret. Number two, responsibility. Take responsibility for what you have done. Understand something, is that when you have done something wrong, there are multiple factors that lead to that. And I'm not negating that. But when we take responsibility, we understand the church didn't make you do it. Your parents didn't make you do it. Your siblings didn't make you do it. Your friends didn't make you do it. Yes, there are factors that obviously were playing into it, but they ultimately weren't the reason you did something that you regret. Take responsibility and realize that what you once were, you no longer have to be. What you have done doesn't have to be what you are going to become. You are not your past. God can make you into a life full of hope for your future. And that will be the case every single day, every single morning. Number three, return. The word metanoia, to repent, means to completely turn around, change your mind, put on different glasses, change the way you think about things. So whenever you regret something, take responsibility for it. Whenever you take responsibility for it, change what it is that you regret. And that will lead to what believers need to live in is number four, I mean, uh, number four, restoration. You cannot change anybody, even your one. You can't force your one into doing anything. Remember that whole free will thing? You can't change anybody. But understand, they have to want to, and then the Holy Spirit can do the rest. You don't always know what part of that it is for you. Think of it like a chain. Sometimes you're like the third link in a, in a chain of 20. Sometimes you're one of 20. Sometimes you're 20 of 20. Sometimes you're just helping them find where the chain is. But you change nobody, and that means yourself. You can change some of your actions, and you can change the way you see things, but it's the Spirit working in you. And when the Spirit restores you, understand, He's restoring you to your very place. Which leads me to number three. He welcomed him home without question. 
You see, back in the story, whenever you're reading about the prodigal son, the dad gives him three things, a robe, a ring, and shoes. Whenever the son left, he supposedly gave all that up. I'm done with it. And yet the very thing that he thought he lost, his dad restored to him right back to where it was. A robe showed him his royalty. A robe was showing that you are part of this family. A ring gave him back his authority, meaning this is who you are. And his shoes gave him value. And that's what the three different things that, that most scholars say that it means, is you've got royalty, and then you've got authority, and then you've got value. And the very things that the, that the son thought he lost forever, the dad gave to him immediately. What we probably would have done is pushed him back down farther, make him say he was sorry, and then we would make him beg for forgiveness. We would make him earn back something. We probably would have said, I can't believe you did that. What, what's wrong? Like, tell me everything that happened. But the father in the story does none of that. The father in the story simply places him back to where he was and restores to him exactly what he used to be. No questions asked. No questions asked. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, it says, Love does not keep score of the sins of others. And that means anybody, anywhere, for anything, at any time. We like to read these verses at, at weddings, right? I've done quite a few weddings, and 97% of them have that phrase in there. But what Paul is saying is in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians 14, he's talking about leadership. So it's not like Paul was like, all right, let's talk about leadership in chapter 12. Now let's break. Let's talk about marriage for 13 and then come back to, to leadership. No. 12 through 14 is leadership regardless. And that means for you in your spiritual walk where you are for who you are. Whenever you choose to forgive somebody, that means that you give the right to bring it back up against them later. Even when it's hard. True forgiveness means you do not keep records and say, yeah, but you did this. Yeah, but you did that. Because we like to do this thing where we justify our incorrect motives because of something somebody else has done in the past. And yet, if we look at Scripture, love does not keep a record of wrong. His father simply hugged him. His father grabbed him. His father embraced him. His father kissed him. And deliberately loving somebody when it's the hardest not only helps the other person see the love of Jesus, but it helps you see what it's like to relentlessly love somebody even when they don't deserve it. Why is that important? Because you are relentlessly loved even when you don't deserve it because of Christ. It's like Paul's prayer. He says, I am the worst of sinners. I'm the bottom. The best thing that could happen to us as people is that we realize just how broken and busted we are. Because if we weren't broken and busted, then we wouldn't need a Savior. And if we didn't need a Savior, then Jesus died for nothing. And if Jesus died for nothing, well, then what are we doing here? We needed that love more than anything. And because of that love, we get to love. And so the question now is, how do you deliberately love your one? How can you show them love? We're going to play one more song, and if you have anything that you want to pray about, talk about, maybe I can clarify. Joel will be on your left, I'll be on your right, and understand something. Is that when we say that we are broken and busted people, and we're the worst of sinners, that's not meant to make you feel bad. 
when I say it, it's because I want you to realize how important the blood of Christ is to you. It's because if we can get rid of the cross, meaning if we can negate what the cross did, then Christianity is completely false. Paul says so himself in 1 Corinthians 15. If the resurrection of Christ doesn't happen, well, then we're the most to be pitied among all people. So understanding how broken we are, we realize how good Christ is. And if we're made in the image of God, then we have a future full of hope. We got to stand? I'm going to pray, and again, if you have anything that you want to pray about, we'll be up here. And realize that God wants to do something inside of you. But sometimes it just simply takes us coming like the persistent mother, just open, willing, and complete humility. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. For your goodness. And for the fact that we're not. God, I pray that if there's anybody out here right now who is struggling or is pulling, trying to figure out how you're talking to them, they feel that pull in their heart that, 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 that something is trying to be said to them. God, help us to take the fog away from our eyes, to clean our glasses, to change our perspective so that you can speak. Father, thank you for everything that you do. In your name I pray.